Hey, it's Kevin here. Thank you so much to all of you who donated to the podcast last time. We're so grateful Rebecca didn't have to pay for this episode out of her own pocket, and that's great. And we will continue to do this every month if we can, and we'll do it weekly again once Serial Season 2 starts. Now, um, listener donations helped us pay for this last episode. We don't have Squarespace or Stamps.com or any of those people to pay for all of this. So, yeah, if you can keep those donations coming, that would be great. You can also find us on Twitter at Crime Writers On. Go to Facebook uh, slash Crime Writers On Serial and our website, which is Crime Writers On. Dot com. One other note, we've submitted our show to Stitcher and hope it'll be up there by uh, the time this episode drops. So hopefully you can, if you're a Stitcher user, check back early and often. All right, enjoy the show. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and you're listening to Crime Writers on Serial. This is a podcast about the podcast Serial and the conviction and ongoing appeal of Adnan Syed. We also discuss story crafting, journalism, crime, pop culture, trial investigations. And this week, we're taking it to a whole new level. Yeah, we're going to have ourselves a little podcast-ception, because this time we are a podcast about a podcast about a podcast. And that final podcast we'll be talking about is Undisclosed, Rabia Chaudhry's show about unfolding developments and new evidence in Adnan Syed's case. So if you haven't listened to episode three of Undisclosed yet, pause, go listen, trust me, it's worth it, and then come back and hit play on our conversation. With me in the studio today is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn, and as much as he hates it when I do this, good morning, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca, or good evening, maybe I should say, (laughs) depending on what time you're listening to this podcast. Kevin believes you shouldn't say the time of day when you're recording a podcast, but I don't think that that's so You're breaking the fourth wall, baby. (laughs) Stop it. Also joining us from UNH in Durham is Laura Bricker, former defense investigator, journalist, and true crime author. Hello, Laura. It's nice to talk with you. Good morning. And also joining us from UNH is crime and noir novelist and resident naysayer Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hi. One quick note, the studio at UNH in Durham is undergoing a bit of construction. The whole journalism building there is getting a much-deserved rehab. So there is a little bit of fan noise in their studio this week because I guess it's really hot over there. You know I appreciate decent production quality, and I apologize for the fan noise, but it should be for this episode only. Big thanks to UNH for letting us use their studio. We appreciate it so much. The last time we were all together, we talked about Adnan's appeal uh, that had been filed by his side. And since then, the state has filed its response. Kevin has agreed to give us a quick recap of the state's response. You said you could do it in less than a minute. Can you try to do that for us? Yeah, okay. So remember, there's the two main points. Uh, It has to do uh, with ineffective counsel. The state is replying to the... uh, the, the motion that was filed by Adnan's defense. So the two things the state are saying regarding Asia McLean being a good witness, uh, an alibi witness that might have exonerated uh, Adnan, the state is saying that that Adnan's defense team had listed 80 potential alibi witnesses. So they obviously were looking at potential alibis. Asia would have been number 81. So they can't really make a claim that uh, they weren't looking into that sort of defense tactic. And they also said, you know, they had access to Adnan's email. And so if the defense is that Asia saw him at the library checking his email, they very easily could have gone and checked his email account, saw that it didn't pan out, because that's what 
Gutierrez told Adnan. You mean that Gutierrez had access to his email because she gave him his uh, Hotmail account and his password, yeah, his and, pass- she, and she never did that, or, or, or allegedly never did that. That That is correct. And remember, uh, we found out that uh, Adnan's password is Poppy, <laughs> which was apparently Hayes' nickname for him. The second part was that uh, it had to do with the plea that uh, Gutierrez never sought out a plea. The state's assertion is that just because your attorney does not seek a plea in a case where none is offered, your constitutional rights have not been violated. So it almost sounds like they're folding the ineffective counsel thing into the appeal issues. They're saying just because you had a, a bad lawyer doesn't mean these issues have ground to stand on. Is that sort well, I think of- they're trying to say it doesn't necessarily mean she had you had a bad lawyer. I mean, it shows that like through some of the other things that that they that Gutierrez was doing at trial and setting up that tactically she did what she thought she had to do and it didn't rise to the level of incompetence or prejudice, which is another sort of the 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 the, the bars that you have to cross in order to claim um, you know a Sixth Amendment uh, violation that that somehow her ineffective counsel prejudiced him at trial. Okay. And there's really no evidence of that. So what happens now is that in 20 days, the, the defense gets to file a reply brief. Oral arguments are set for June. However, both sides think that that will be delayed. Okay. So, Laura, I'm going to come to you because um, one of the things that keeps coming up again and again, and we'll talk about this uh, in, in the context of Rabia's podcast as well, is this idea that, you know, uh, Adnan's lawyer had some stuff and didn't do anything with it. And I'm wondering, you know, you've worked on defenses. You are a defense investigator. When you hear something like, you know, the email was never checked, does that strike a chord with you as just being like an easy step? Or is that the kind of thing where the defendant gives you so much that you don't have time to get to everything and do everything? I mean, what, what, how do you react when you hear that? Well, I can tell you, I certainly worked on a lot of cases that were alibi cases, as I've talked about before. And I always had to check out all these avenues and all these, I call them wild goose chases. Sometimes they were. But if you don't check them out, you never know. And I was always told, you know, if we don't check this out and it does turn out to be something, we could be brought up uh, on an ineffective claim. So hearing that she never followed up with Asia McLean, as I've said before, that's the first thing I would have done as a defense investigator. And also, um, these 80 other alibi witnesses, I have to wonder if these are some of the people that are at the mosque and not necessarily 80 individual separate alibi witnesses. Um, so I think, you know, looking at the big picture of those 80 or 81 people, how many were legitimate alibi witnesses that should have been followed up on? I mean, I certainly think that all the witnesses should have been interviewed by the defense. They should have been. And um, Toby, I don't know if, um, I mean, we'll talk about, get really get into the podcast in a second. But one of the things that, you know, I think is a, a big theme of Undisclosed and a big theme of what Robbie is trying to do is frame it to show that the police were only looking at Adnan. So there are all these other people that were never talked to. And I'm wondering, is, is that something that you've noticed as you've started listening to this other podcast? Yeah, well, I think it, uh, and I think I've talked about it before, but my sense is that the police kind of saw it as this is an easy easy case to solve. Like um, the police detective said that it, it seemed like a classic domestic violence situation. So I, my, my guess is, is that just given the size of their caseload and stuff, they're like, this is a, this is a quick one. We've got the guy, we've got the witness in Jay, and... Um, you know, we can tie this one up quickly and spend our resources elsewhere. 
Rabia Chaudhry, who we talked to the last episode of our podcast, has launched her own podcast. Uh, the other two people on it are Susan Simpson, who blogs on The View from LL2, and Colin Miller, who is a law professor who writes the Evidence Prof blog. All three very, very smart lawyers. And, you know, I think Susan and Colin in particular are... Um, they, they sort of have their own take and they, they bring something very unique. And Rabia is clearly an advocate, you know, and I, I think Susan maybe has become an advocate. I think Colin is an analyst. I'm not really 100% sure what their roles are. But the podcast does take this radical new look. It is a new format. Clearly, they're sort of struggling with some production stuff at the beginning. But I think that if you if you haven't listened to it, it's worth listening to episode one and two so you can get to episode three, which I think really, really pays off. So let's talk about episode three. Let's just start right there because I don't want to bury the lead. I feel like this huge thing which happened. Which they kind of did in episode yeah, three. The huge... great stuff doesn't come in until 32 minutes into the podcast. That's right. That's right. And it's you know it's not a narrative podcast. It's three lawyers talking. And we mm-hmm. could talk a little bit about how that format works or doesn't work later. But let's talk about the thing that happened. And the thing that happened was that Susan Simpson now listening to the tapes of Jay's interrogation with the police, Jay's questioning with the police, points to something that sounds an awful lot like the police pointing at a piece of paper telling him what to say. Toby, I want to come to you first because I think that you have been the most sort of pro-investigation and and sort of looking at the police in the most positive light of probably the rest of this panel. And how did you react when when you heard that tape, when you heard Simpson explain what it meant? Just give me your gut sort of like reaction. Well, I, you know, I think it can go two ways, and I, I, I think I know which way that the rest of you guys are going are gonna to talk about it. So I, I think the sort of benign explanation for it is that they've spent, you know, hours talking with Jay, trying to recreate this uh, afternoon and evening, and, you know, they reference that they've come up with this sort of step-by-step thing of his movements, and they've got this map, so they've been talking to him for, for quite a while, and so now they're going to do it from the top in so, sort of a coherent fashion for the record. So he starts talking through it and, you know, he's stressed. He's probably tired, whatever. And so as he starts telling the story, when he's when he's missing parts, they tap. They're like, you know, don't forget about this one. And he goes back and tells it and that, you know, I, I think Rabia and friends kind of kind of put this forward as something that's sort of nefarious and it's it's the the police are kind of coaching him to tell the story they want him to to tell when you know I think it's it's probably equally likely or believable that they're trying to tell him like don't skip this part of the story remember you told us about this and that it's mostly trying to keep this kid who you know his his mind is kind of scattered to to go through each step of the story rather than going from well I was here and then I was here they're like well wait between those two things there was this so you know I I think you could read it one of two ways Laura uh, I think the thing that struck me and I, I don't know what about this tape you know really struck you and you could tell me that was that Jay it was he wasn't just that he was forgetting he was he he seemed to be for, forgetting the story he was supposed to tell altogether, like that they were in one car, for instance. They kept having to remind him, remember, you were in two cars. What stuck out to you and what were your impressions when you heard this and you sort of heard Susan's analysis of what it could mean? Well, I think you're going to be surprised by my answer on this. I, I remain skeptical. I, I did not see this as as big of a smoking gun as perhaps they did. I listened. I tried very hard to hear this. And, and I hear the tapping. 
Um, I've also listened and watched a lot of interrogation um, tapes in cases. And even when she was saying that the police were angry with him or upset or listened to their voice now, it didn't really sound that angry to me. I've, I've seen interrogations where it's so blatantly obvious that things are being done improperly. And I'm sure that their side of this is, well, these are savvy, um, you know, inner city detectives. Um, I just... I still remain a bit skeptical about this. Um, and yes, Jay does say, does say a lot, you know, he's forgetting, I'm sorry. We don't know how long he had been in there at this point. We don't know how much pot he was smoking at this point in his life and how his short-term memory was. Um, so it was interesting, um, but I don't necessarily find myself as excited as the podcasters were. Okay, so Kevin, why don't we just go straight to you and you can let us know what you heard. Yeah, I, I was really blown away by that finding um and you know they right they cleaned up the audio a bit which was good because you know production wise throughout throughout the, the the podcast it is sometimes hard to understand you know these are important clips and what's actually going on so to this is the first time they went stop let's listen to that again and i think that told us okay let's really pay attention and yeah i can definitely see in my mind you know somebody pointing to something and the question becomes you know, why and to what end? And if it's because, yeah, Jay, you missed point sixteen, I think that's really important. You, you have to also kind of get, well, where did the, these, they call them top points, where did these come from to begin with? Is this stuff made up out of whole cloth that the police are trying to get Jay to say? Are they putting together Jay's thoughts and writing them down and now making him reperform it? I don't know. But did it, some of it come from Jen, perhaps? <clears throat> Yeah, and I think that they're going to try to tell us a little more about that. But I do think that was a a, a big uh, discovery. And I think in the telling of Undisclosed, in, in the telling of this side of the story, that is, uh, that's a whopper. Well, I don't, I don't purport to know what it means, but I can tell you what my reaction was, which is that this was, I think, as Toby said, how these police do their job. And so I don't necessarily think that they would have gotten upset or angry, you know, had I feel like they did this a lot. They sort of put a story together, made a list. And then when they turned the tape on, had the witness read from the narrative that they'd pieced together based on their conversations with them or however they got it. Really what struck me, and I, and I, I don't want to like belabor it too much, is that Jay's habitual inability to stay on task and on focus didn't just lead him astray in terms of like, okay, he made up a lie about the gloves and he made up, he was literally telling a story that didn't happen in his mind. Like, you know, the, the idea that they weren't in the same car, you know, I, I was following him in another car and then he turns to me and says, and the guy was like, remember, you're in two separate, it doesn't seem it's to hard me like to something. Tell, it's hard to tell whether or not that means that he's making this up in his mind or he's confusing the fact that they are actually sitting together. It is hard Which to tell. is the lie. It is hard to tell and he was their key witness. The whole case hung on this guy. Laura, were you going to say something just now? Yeah, I was going to say something. Um, I'd like, you know, one of the things, and I don't know if people realize this, that um, when there is a case going to trial, it is very common for both the prosecution and the defense to work with witnesses before they testify and do mock, direct, and indirect testimony with them to get them straight on their stories. So both sides do this with their witnesses before trial, um, and that's not necessarily uncommon. Defendants, um, obviously, if they want to testify, sometimes that's not 
really a great idea. They may go through this mock direct and indirect um, experiment to see how they do, but regular witnesses do it as well, uh, expert witnesses. So this is not uncommon. Okay. But does that happen at the police interrogation room level, especially when a, a detective may be called upon to testify as a witness himself? I don't think that they would be necessarily, you know, trying to get him to commit to what he's going to testify to. But, you know, and I've done this as a defense investigator. You do try to nail people down on their statement to be certain that they are very clear about what they do and don't remember. And it's not uncommon to repeat a statement back to somebody and say, this is what you said. Is this correct? Well, I I think that this is really interesting. And I think that it brings up the point. I mean, clearly, I think... You know, we have, Laura, you have the inside track into sort of like how the police do their work. I do only as, you know, somebody who writes these stories, I read a lot of police interviews. And in fact, you know, we'll talk about this in a little bit. Kevin and I just handed in a manuscript and, you know, I was sort of, uh, the the part of it I was in charge of was sort of turning the interrogation into a chapter. And the one thing of note here, and, I, you know, a lawyer friend told me this once, and I think it really, really comes out here, is that the transcript does not read at all like what the tape sounds like because they don't transcribe a pause. And I think that, you know, it's, it actually is that the pauses can be really, really important. And in these pauses, we heard something, but sometimes a pause can just indicate something else altogether. And it's, it's really sort of meaningful to hear versus read. I mean, Toby, do you agree that it's a different experience when you hear what he said, you know, from his mouth versus when, you know, Sarah read you what he said? Yeah. No, I, I think it definitely does. Um, and yeah, I was, this is sort of on topic, but, you know, I was texting with my son the other day and I was texting him about, I can't even remember what it was, but you know, there's no nuance when it's just written down. Like you can't, you can't read into it. So his impression was that I was angry with him about something, and I was just trying to get something clear, to get something straight. But it wasn't, didn't have any particularly strong feelings about it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's being able to hear the people talk. I think is 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 crucial as to, um, y- you know. Well, there, there's plenty of like not there's plenty of verbal things that you give away that that don't have to do with the actual words you're saying, but but the pauses, you know, your tone of voice, all, all those kinds of things. What does Toby sound like when he's angry? <laughs> what I sound I sound exactly like that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in your case, you do need to text that because, yeah, yeah. because when everything's in capital letters, then your son will know you're angry. Exactly, three three exclamation points. All right. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about the formatics of undisclosed. We have uh, Rabia, who I think we we absolutely are clear what her role is. She is Adnan's advocate. She's the one who sort of spurred this creation of you know this foundation that's collecting money for his defense. She makes no bones about it. And you know, one of the things I like about her is that she's very comfortable just sort of saying that and releasing herself from the obligation of, you know, some sort of impartiality. I think that Susan Simpson is sort of emerged in the podcast as sort of like the Nancy Drew. Um, Rabia explicitly said in episode three, I first realized she could solve this case when dot, dot, dot. And I think Colin Miller, I mean, he really, if you read his blog, it's not all about serial. He talks about all sorts of cases and he's really looking at the importance of certain developments, you know, what this could mean. He's sort of the evidence weigher. But essentially what you end up having is you have Rabia sort of, um, you know, she's not really acting as a lawyer in this role. She's kind of acting as, you know, the, the framer of the story. And then you have just two lawyers, you know, talking. And one of the things that I think 
you know, is different about this is that there's no uh, inquisitor, there's no sort of, um, you know, there's no Toby to, to, sort of, to sort of point at things. And, and I'm wondering, Kevin, if, if you think, you know, Rabia said it's not a narrative podcast, but does a podcast, I mean, it, it kind of has to be a narrative, but is an investigation itself and an unpacking of evidence, isn't that also a narrative? It is. I mean, in some ways, I think, <clears throat> I think this is like the Adnan's legal dream team. On the on a podcast because you've got not only uh, Rabia who's like number one advocate, but you've got like the two best crowdsourced lawyers who have you know uh, really made a name for themselves looking at the serial case. So you've got you've got the three that you really want looking at it, and in some ways it's a lot like I, I would equate it to a defense closing argument, um, and that it's you know it's okay that it's one sided. You know, I mean, I, I, not that they're, uh, you know. Well, no one's forcing anyone yeah. who thinks Adnan's guilty to listen. I mean, it's, yes, you listen also, by choice. Right, and it's not, you know, they're not being deceptive about it. I mean, they're, they're obviously there to look at, you know, parts of the case that did not come out and, you know, to advance the um, the belief that Adnan is not guilty. So you've got a really interesting group there. I will say for folks who, like, haven't listened all the way through to – to, to get past episode one, because you know, on the line a lot of people have panned it. It's rough production-wise. They're just getting started. There are a bunch of lawyers trying to be radio people. Well, here, we're a bunch of radio people trying to be lawyers. So I can totally, you know, but, but, but by the time you get to episode two, it's cleaned up really well. And the first Seinfeld episode was not very good, and the pilot of MASH was not very good either. But the pilot either. of Serial was excellent. It was part, let's right, face it, they're right. radio so, people. So get past that and get into listening to it. And I think, uh, and I, and I think my other panelists here are going to agree, there's a lot going on in Undisclosed. And sometimes there's so much, you have to concentrate. Mm-hmm. So much is going by, and you're also trying to compare timelines and things that you already know. You feel like you have to take notes. Yeah, it's hard. It's it, it's it would be a lot easier to read this because you can stop and go back and reread that. If you stop and think, what was that? You've already you've already mentally missed the next thing that they're talking about. Right. So um, so I like it. It's 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 very meaty, but it can be sometimes hard to chew. Toby, what would you like to hear from? I mean, is there? I mean, if if you're interested in this case still, are you interested in this case still? First of all, it's a fair question, right? I think some people aren't. Some people are. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still interested. Okay, so if you're interested in this case and, and you're interested in hearing, like, you know, new developments, what would you like to hear from this particular group of people? Is there anything that um, they could add? Is there anything that they could bring or anything um, that they, you know, could deliver for you or, or th- that would make this a satisfying listen for you? Yeah, well, I think, you know, and I, th- I don't think it's quite as much with us because we're not sort of throwing out like tons and tons of sort of factual information. In fact, I think we brought a lot of unfactual information. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Because <laughs> uh, they're less focused on the lies that we tell. Um, but I, I think, you know, one, one of the advantages I think to Serial was that because it wasn't sort of a, you know, a, a one take going through things, like she could go back and, and, and take, a, I guess, take a look at what they, they'd already recorded and then insert things to kind of bring you up to speed. Remember this, remember that, and, and sort of put things in context a little bit. You know, I, I found the podcasts really interesting. And uh, they do require you to really focus on, on what they're talking about. And there were a few times when I was trying to figure out what the significance of different things was. So, I mean, that was the only 
The only thing that I I felt would have been a little bit helpful would have been if there there could have been a every once in a while there could have been a pause and, and like this is what the significance is right but, a beat right but they've you know I the the third the third episode in particular I mean the the, the whole thing with the tab you know regardless of what your uh, interpretation of what that's all about means I mean it, it really is it's it's a it's a new a new twist on the story, which is not something that I think could be reasonably expected right. of a podcast. So, you know, when I, when I heard that, I, you know, if I had come up with that, I would have been pretty happy with myself. So I, you know, kudos, kudos to them. So I think it's, a, <laughs> I, I think it's, a, I think it's a very, it's an interesting podcast. It just, it, it demands a little bit more attention than driving around in your car, like the way I listen to most podcasts. Laura, I'm curious to know, this is, to me, it's a little bit of a new format. And, you know, love it or hate it, you have, you know, three really smart people, two people sort of working actively in the legal profession right now. One of them is a law professor, which I think adds a lot of depth. And they're looking at one case. Do you think that there is something that the podcast listening public, uh, that there's a benefit to sort of learning about how the legal system works by hearing these people talk about the case. I, I don't know. That's kind of what, what pops out to me. And, and the way that you talk about the work you did, I'm always thinking, like, I didn't know that. I mean, do you hear that, too? I do hear that. And I think that that is I think that's important because, as you know, with Serial, there is a really rabid fan base to Serial and especially among the people that feel that Adnan was wrongfully convicted. Um, And there's many theories out there and everybody has a theory about, you know, what went wrong, how he was wrongfully convicted. But there's a lot of things that aren't admissible in court. There's a lot of things that may sound good when you hear them, but they're not necessarily something that could be used in the case. And so I think it's really good that you do have these lawyers explaining this in such a way that the listeners can understand that. Um, I was going to say, listening to this sort of reminds me of what we used to call a case conference when we'd have a tricky case and you'd get a room full of lawyers and investigators and everybody would sit around and pick apart the case and somebody would present a theory of the case and you'd go through it. Um, The thing that I think is missing like Toby said from this, is that there was always a devil's advocate in that meeting. And in this um, podcast, they're really just sort of running with it. And it's, um, I'm sure for the people that are, you know, on the Adnan bandwagon, this is very exciting. But I would like to see a little bit of somebody saying, well, this is great about the tap, 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 but how or, you know, could this even be used in court? Um, Why, why not? Well, we, we saw that in the staircase, we saw that the legal conference, the team would have, you know, they would talk about all their good facts, but they would also talk about all their bad facts. Is that what you think that we really could could stand to hear here? It's like this is this. Is, these are the good facts and these are the, this is the new evidence, but these are the bad facts. Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean, because I don't think we're necessarily hearing anything about why the other side is going to say Adnan is guilty, why the other side is going to say this new bombshell about Jay is not necessarily as significant as the podcasters think. I would like to see that angle brought into this. Laura, I'm going to stay with you for a second, and then we'll sort of go around. I want everyone to sort of comment on this. A big thing that came up in the Undisclosed was Jen. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff about people remembering things differently. But a huge, huge thing that they sort of seem to go back to again and again is the the difference between Jay and Jen's narratives. Like the, the, and the differences that converged and the ones that never converged. And I, I think it's Rabia who says the whole role of Jen is to corroborate Jay. That is her purpose in this case. 
Uh, what did you think of those disparities in, and the inability of the police to sort of mesh them together um, in terms of those stories? What do you think that could mean? Well, Jen has always sort of been an enigma in this whole story, in this whole narrative. You know, why is she here? Why are she and Jay hanging out together all the time? I think in the past I've said, you know, I think they were just probably sitting around smoking pot and playing video games all day. But if her purpose here is to collaborate Jay's story, they didn't do a very good job of it. Um, She's so far off track, even with the times that she's talking about going to the mall for the clothes. I mean, it's so inconsistent, um, the going to the sorority party that Jay has no recollection of. Um, Even her reaction to hearing the news uh, when Jay tells her, you know, Adnan killed Hay, it doesn't really fit. So I I would like to see, when you were talking before about what else you'd like to see this podcast do, I'd like to know more about Jen because her timeline doesn't match up. Um, she just, I don't really understand where she fits in this, in this story. Kevin, what did you think about all of this um, Jen stuff? In Je- the also, Jen has been a very interesting figure in my mind, too. And I- I'm going to definitely agree with Laura that I just cannot figure out why and where she fits into this bigger picture. She's important, but none of us can really figure out why. The one thing that they did talk about when they compared the two stories and how they were so far apart, there was one point where they were always together, and it was that Jay and Jen were together at 340. And that never changes And for them. And that's because they have just given themselves an alibi. That is intriguing to me because why does it need to be Everything else can be off and we can be stoned and we can confabulate and whatever, but we both remember this time together when everything else is, is questionable. And it is, and they pointed out, they've just given each other an alibi. What do you think, Toby? I, I think if, if my point, if I was Jay and I was with Jen and the point was to give each other an alibi, I'd get my story a lot more straight. Again, I, I always just come back to... You know, 16, 17-year-old smoking a lot of weed and then being asked about what did you do on this particular afternoon, it, it doesn't surprise me that they're not completely clear about why did I go over to that house again? Was I going to play video games? Was I, was I going to smoke more pot with my friend Jen? You know, it's interesting, and I don't know why they that, that one thing about 340, why they're so clear about that one. Uh, it might have been bit. 240. I can't. I mean, this yeah. proves the point about uh, you can't remember because I'm I'm sure somebody is tweeting us right now <laughs> that we got the time wrong. I remember it was a specific time. But that's kind of the point. Is that the one of the things that I that really sticks out to me is I mean they spend a lot of time in undisclosed blowing out the state's timeline. I felt like the state's timeline was already blown by cereal. Right. Yeah. I felt like I didn't buy the timeline anyway because it just didn't make any sense on like a bunch of different levels. Um, but one of the things that you know was touched on in the sort of post-serial discussion and that and Susan really dives into in Undisclosed, which I thought was very interesting, was not just the confabulation of sort of things that happened that day, but the pegging of the actual day itself. And I think um, there are a lot of examples of it. You know, the coach thinks he remembers. He talked to a non on a day, but the, but the prosecution threw that out because he couldn't quite remember. But then they're able to look at the weather and say, yeah, it was very likely that day. And then, you know, the conference that Kat 
Kathy, not Kathy. I'm sorry, I can't use her real name. I Christy. Like, I like calling her Kathy, not Kathy. Christy with an I. Come on, Rebecca. <laughs> I mean, so many things point people remembering the wrong day, but I think the most interesting one, the one that there's sort of evidence that points to that the state's evidence was, was pegged to the wrong day, was the Randallstown wrestling match mm-hmm. memory of Inez Butler and of the note left in Hayes' car. It's very clear to me, anyway, the wrestling match. I mean, we can argue about whether or not the TV taping happened on that day, but the wrestling match certainly didn't happen that day, which means that note to Don was not written that day. Laura, was this interesting to you, too, this sort of like, this wasn't this day that, 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 that the police and the prosecutors are telling people, we heard Becky say in trial, the police told me it had to be this day when she had earlier said she didn't remember which day it was? I'm so confused about the days after listening to all of this. I have to be honest. I had to draw myself a little flow chart. Um, it is confusing. I mean, I think that it is interesting that the note wasn't necessarily written to Dawn that day. But after having gone through the timeline of everybody else that saw Hay on this day and firming up who saw her when and where, it didn't make that much of a difference to me. Because you already thought that there were issues with the timeline of the day or... Yeah, I never really bought the timeline of the day, um, as we talked about in Serial and the Best Buy parking lot. I mean, to me, still the most interesting fact that has come out in recent times, and it's not from this podcast, is the information about Hay having been laying flat for a period of time before her body was moved after she was killed. I think that's the most significant thing that's come out recently in terms of this case and poking holes in the timeline and maybe suggesting that things did not happen in this order. And that, I think, is more of a clue than than the note in Hayes' car. I, I think it is as well. And I think that there are some things that it sounds like Undisclosed is sort of leading us down this path where there are going to be, you know, the evidentiary stuff. Rabia talked about that, I think, when we talked last time, um, you know, the, the lividity stuff. And then also the... Um, you know, the car itself, you know, we hear now the police coaching Jay and the story has always been that Jay told them where the car was. But I, I think that they're going yeah. to th- that they might throw that into question. I think they hinted that that's what episode four is going to be about is the car. And why not? Because we are led to believe that that's the scene of the crime. Right. In the state's um, uh, brief that they filed uh, again, you know, recently, they talked a little bit about what was in the car. One of the things that they piece of evidence they they found was that the wiper uh, knob, you know, the windshield wiper uh, knob was broken, which as uh, and they said that that uh, goes along with the idea that uh, there was a struggle in the car. But again, the the physical evidence of the body kind of puts into question whether or not it happened there, or at least whether or not Hayes' dead body was stored in the trunk. Right, that's that's the big one, because that, that's a huge part of the narrative. Yeah. So I want to get a little more granular, and Toby, I've got something I, I want to ask you, and then I want to go around to everybody, because I feel like Serial was like reading a, a great like novel, and then when we hear sort of some of this real-life stuff pull in, it's almost like uh, when that book is made into a movie and the things don't look or feel the way you expected them to, sort of, you know, in your own imagination. You know, one of those details for me, for example, is hot fries, you know, in my head, maybe I'm just dumb. <laughs> I always thought it meant like fries, you know, like, like French fries. <laughs> and it just occurred to me listening to the undisclosed. No, they're talking about that snack that comes in the bag with Andy the orange. caps hot fries. <laughs> yes. They're uh, so, like Funyuns. So, Toby, I'm wondering for you, have there been things that have popped out where you're like, oh, that's not what I pictured or thought or, or felt? Or, you know, because Sarah, I think it just owned the story to such a great degree that it's sort of ingrained in us that it happened a certain way and things looked a certain way. Were there any details like that for you? No. (laughs) (laughs) 
Edit. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I. Uh, yeah. I guess. I guess it's not that there's necessarily details as much as she. She definitely. I feel like, you know, if you have a scale of zero to ten, and zero is like you definitely think Adnan's guilty, and ten is you definitely think he's innocent. And I think she probably came in at like a seven or an eight. You know, that there's a certain tone that's set about, you know, what is this narrative really about? It's, mm-hmm. it's about this guy who's not definitely innocent. He's not definitely guilty from what we know. But what she's really going to show, and again, it's because the, the story of guilty guy in prison is not all that compelling, is that he's innocent. And, and, and things are, are, are sort of slanted slightly in that way. And then when you get to somebody who's like a real advocate of like trying to get him out of out, out of jail, and I think you know a lot of what they're doing in this podcast is just showing what three good lawyers with all kinds of time and resources, like how they would attack the uh, the government's case against him, which seems fairly successfully is the is the answer. But it's just, it's more sort of what what the outlook of the people who are driving the narrative is, and, and what it looks like, and even some of the parts of serial, how they look like to somebody who's just, who's just very invested in, in Adnan being, being innocent. So it doesn't matter to you whether it's fries or hot fries. It's, it's really just about the, the, the case and the story is what I'm hearing you say. Uh, yeah. The, the fries, hot fries thing was not, did not keep me up at night. <laughs> I think Kevin was kept up at night by learning that it was indoor track and not, uh, I just, all this time we were talking about track. I, <laughs> yeah. I thought them running the outside. I didn't know that there was, I kept thinking it must be really warm in Maryland if they're running track in January. Right, right after it snows. Yeah, I'm like, oh, there's, I mean, we're in New England. It's like, uh, all right, well, I guess we're just going to have to hurdle over the snowbanks. All right, I'd like to address a question that we got via Twitter. Brendan Kenny, who's actually a trial lawyer, I believe he lives like in Minneapolis, uh, he sent us a video with his question. I'm just going to play a little clip of it now. Hi, Crime Riders on Serial. Uh, this is Brendan Kenny. I'm at... Uh, at K-E-N-N-Y-B-R-E-N-D-A-N on Twitter. And I am a faithful listener to you guys. I really enjoy your take on uh, Serial and other stuff. And what I'm interested in is the Adnan, I'm going to kill you note or kill hey note um, that they talked about in the case. And if you've looked at the state's brief opposing Adnan's appeal, it's really worth looking at. They talk about that note a lot. And you'll see that it got very short shrift in Serial and also in Undisclosed. And I'd just like um, someone to look at it a little more. I, I, as a trial lawyer, I know there's problems about it coming into evidence, but I'd like you guys to talk about it. So, Toby, I know you took a look at this letter. Uh, what, what do you think of this question? How would you approach answering it? I, I'm a little bit at a loss as to how to answer this question, so why don't you take this one? You know, I didn't get a chance to take a look at, like, the inks and, and things like that. Um, because I'd, I'd sort of forgotten about this, to be, to be honest with you. But what I think it, it, it sort of drives home to me, again, it's, you know, Sarah had to make a lot of decisions. And Robbie had talked before about how, you know, she knew all kinds of stuff that Sarah had found that, that she couldn't talk about, but that she would love to have come out. And for people, I guess, who don't know what the letter is and what we're talking about, it's, it's um, on one side of it, it's a letter from Hay to Adnan essentially saying, I don't know why you're so angry at me. I wish you could accept that my decision to break up with you, people break up all the time and your life is not over. Uh, you know, I've had enough of your, you know, hostility or whatever. And then on the back, 
at the very top of the page, somebody, you know, presumably Adnan has written, I'm going to kill. And then below that, there's some sort of, you know, it's, it's hard to tell how serious it is stuff about, about hey, possibly being pregnant and going to an abortion clinic or something. So she kind of dismisses this. And I think it's episode six where she says it's like something from a bad mystery novel. But it, but it's not from a bad mystery novel. I mean, it's something that, that the police legitimately found. And, you know, does it mean Adnan is guilty or does it even mean he's more likely to be guilty? You know, uh, probably not. But it seems like when you have the prime suspect has written, I'm going to kill on the back of a letter from the, from the victim, that, you know, is, is that really something that you can just ignore or just sort of write off in one sentence about how... It's just simply too, it, it's too convenient, so I'm going to ignore it. Kevin, what, what's your take on this uh, letter? I thought Sarah didn't, didn't really uh, give as much weight to the letter as she could have, at least from a dramatic aspect. I mean, I think that in, you know, the book version or the, the, you know, the movie version of this, this would be, you know, uh, there'd be a big musical sting. Uh, it's not unusual that police would find something written down that you would say, oh, if he really did it, he would have gotten rid of that. And we have we have a whole book we did where a guy kept a notebook with the script of what he made his victim say before he shot her, and they found it underneath, a, you know, a, a chair pillow. Chair yeah. pillow. <laughs> so yeah. So on one side, it's you know this letter that Adnan gets, and it's his love of his life crushing him, and he keeps it. And on the back, apparently, you know, I guess we're left to believe that he is showing the letter to Aisha in health class because they're making references to what's up on the overhead, Mm -hmm. and they're talking about somebody. They don't say, hey, but we are left to presume it's hey about maybe she's, you know, her breast, ask her for a breast or tender. Maybe she got an abortion on Saturday when we went to Adventureland. Then at the top, it says, I'm going to kill. There's no object in that sentence. It's not saying I'm going to kill her. I'm going to kill it a baby? I or, don't know. Or I'm going. I'm going to kill you for saying that. Kill you, right? Which is like a very I'm common going, idiom, I think, when you're like. In- it's hard. It looks really, really bad, but it's hard to tell whether or not that is something that means exactly what it says. Well, maybe that's something that we should like see if the undisclosed folks could take up because they might have a you know something behind it that we don't know. So what I'm hearing you both say is it looks bad. There should have been more put weight put on it, but you don't know. Yep. Yeah, you know, also what could have been. It also could have been a, a, um, the basis of a. F- theory of the case, right. um, that if Adnan believed that Hay was carrying his child, mm-hmm. I don't believe she was you know, pregnant at the time of her death. I think that was not something that was disclosed. I think it would have been a big deal. But if he believed that and she left him, I mean, then that also becomes a, uh, a motive to kill. Or they could have been learning about it in health class. And or they could have just, just been learning about it in health class, and he just happened to have this letter and just decided he wanted to keep it. Or they were using it as notepaper. You know? You never yeah. know. So, Laura, I'm going to come to you because I, I want to switch it up a little bit, um, I, I, I kind of get off of Undisclosed and sort of talk about the meat of something that I think we all know a little bit about, which is writing. Full disclosure, Kevin and I just handed in a manuscript for a book. One of the reasons why it's been five weeks since we recorded a podcast is we were on deadline for a book. And in our new book, uh, we are looking at a case, the Seth Mazalia case, very high profile, very sordid murder case here in New Hampshire. Uh, A girl by the name of Lizzie Marriott was murdered by this guy. But one of the things that I was really hoping to do a little bit, and I was probably serial inspired, but also I think inspired just by some other 
you know, books that I'd read was do a little bit more signposting in this book. You know, you know, write something at the beginning that says this case is interesting and this is why we were interested in it and here's why you should be interested in it. Kevin felt like, no, if someone's buying this book, they're going to buy the book and we don't need to coach them through why they should like it. Um, I, you know, in the book that you wrote and in the reporting that you did, did you ever feel like that was a device worth using or is that something that I should just let go? <laughs> oh, boy, this is a tricky spot to be in. I mean, I'm in the middle of this, but um, I didn't necessarily do signposting. I did a lot of like teasing things that were going to happen because, I, you know, even though this is nonfiction, I feel like you've got a lot of detail, a lot of details that can bog people down. And I think you need to remember to bring in some fictional writing tools um, like foreshadowing. And, and I didn't necessarily use signposting, but I certainly looked at how I was telling the story in such a way to keep the reader going. Um, and that's one of the things in the Undisclosed podcast. I was so bogged down in details that I would have liked a little bit more pausing and waiting and kind of preparing me for some of the information. And I think that's coming in episode three. But um, going back to the writing, that's something that I used. Toby, I have a question for you because, um, first of all, Toby, are you working on anything right now? Uh, yes. Are you working on another noir novel? Yeah, it's it's not in the same sort of series as my first three, but it's uh, it's got sort of a similar feel to it, but it's it's more contemporary. So one of the things that I think that, you know, we know Sarah had to do and one of the things that Kevin and I have to do is sort of um, – There are some scary parts, like some sort of personally like icky feeling parts to doing this work where you have to like reach out to a family member of a victim and, you know, try to get them to help. And you have to make phone calls you don't want to make and so forth. Are there sort of parts that you dread, the scary parts of doing the work that you do? Because I know it's like a very probably a very different process, I'd imagine. Yeah, it's more sort of internal stuff, I guess. The writing I've done, it hasn't gone quite there. But I, I know that that particularly people who write more sort of introspective fiction, like the whole thing is, you know, to get into the parts of yourself that aren't particularly savory and being willing to explore those and and, and put them on the page in some way. So I, I think that's kind of the equivalent is that you're not sort of reaching out to somebody else and finding out about them, but but being introspective enough that you can pull out the things that aren't that great about yourself and and put those on the page. And I think Oftentimes that really resonates with other people who have similar feelings about themselves that, that, that aren't that great. And, and to kind of read about an author writing about, about that stuff is sometimes you know, compelling. I don't want Toby exposing himself in any way. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to move on. Uh, just to wrap it up, I know it's everyone's favorite thing to do on the show. We're going to talk about the crime of the week. Following up on a previous crime of the week we discussed, Deflategate. I know, Deflategate, it's everywhere. And this is the question that I have. You know, you can answer it about Tom Brady's culpability and punishment if you'd like, or you can answer it about the media saturation, the importance that has been put on this story. I just want your quick thoughts following up the NFL report that came out, Tom Brady's implication in cheating, and the four-game suspension that he received as well as that million-dollar fine the Patriots received, and the media oversaturation. Very quick thoughts, Kevin, go. I can't go very quick. It's more probable than not that Tom Brady was at least generally aware of the inappropriate activities in the locker room. That is not a, very, <laughs> that is not a damning statement. Look, if Tom Brady serves four-game suspension, that's the same amount of games that Ben Roethlisberger served after his second rape accusation. And it's four games more than, than uh, Ray Lewis served after pleading down for murder 
to obstruction of justice. I think it's disproportionate to the crime. Those two yahoos in the, uh, the locker room, get rid of them. Tom Brady, perhaps, I think he'll get two games. What do you think, Toby? As far as it being uh, properly proportional, I mean, I think when people are committing crimes, I mean, I think it's good for there to be suspensions and things like that. But that's not really the jurisdiction of the NFL commissioner. Good point. I mean, what, he's, what he's trying to keep is the integrity of the game. I, I have no connection to the Patriots or other, any other football team, but when you, you hear other quarterbacks talking about the handling of, of game balls, I mean, they all say nobody would dare do anything to a ball without the quarterback knowing and, 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 and telling them that that's what they wanted to have done. It's just, you know, everything's for the quarterback as far as the balls go. And so I think just in order to preserve the integrity of the game and, and so that people are aware that there isn't uh, an unfair advantage given to one team or the other, I mean, I think he, I think he did have to come down pretty hard. You know, I think it would have been a little bit different if, if Brady right off the bat had come out and said, hey, I, I realized that we were, you know, trying to take some of the air out of the balls. I didn't realize it was to this extent. You know, my bad. You know, I think he probably could have gotten away without a suspension or a very short suspension. I think once you, you know, start denying knowledge, uh, say you don't know people who you've communicated with, things like that, uh, you know, again, it's, sometimes it's the cover-up and not the crime. You know, I think it's a, sort of a jurisdictional thing. All right, Laura. Brady's punishment of Lategate, the media coverage, what do you think? Well, as I've said before, I'm really not a football watcher. Um, you know, I'm most annoyed that this is clogging up my Facebook feed because everybody's talking about it. Um, so I, I really haven't followed it that closely. I do think it's interesting. You know, I guess Tom Brady, in my view, my limited view of sports is sort of an untouchable golden boy figure. So I think it is significant well, he that was. he's actually getting some punishment. But I just like to see what else is going on in the world. I agree with you. I will weigh in on this one, even though I don't always weigh in on the crime of the week stuff. I think this is an unimportant story that has been given way, way too much time. The other night on the Boston News, they uh, said we were going to air a story about a mother who saved her baby by jumping out of the window of a burning building. We've been promoting that story all day. But the Tom Brady decision in Deflategate has pushed that story off and we're going to air it tomorrow. That is too much. Even you can agree with that, Kevin. I can agree with that. The whole <laughs> 6 o'clock news was they broke in as if, you know, uh, the king had died. <laughs> okay. Well, Kevin, thank you for taking the time to come down to the studio and chat with us this morning. I'm glad that I was at least generally aware of what was happening Can you today. tell us your Twitter handle, please? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. Toby Ball, thank you so much for heading over to the studio at UNH today. Thank you. It was fun. And what is your Twitter handle, Toby? It's at... Toby Ball and H. And Laura Bricker, thank you so much too. Thank you. It's at Laura Bricker and um, have a great week. And thanks to the folks at UNH for letting us use their studio today. You can find out more about all the crime writers, including links to all of our books at our website. The address is crimewriterson.com. There you can hear past episodes, find my email address if you want to send me a note, find our Twitter handles, make a donation if you want. Thank you so much to everyone who has. Please leave a review on iTunes if you listen there. Catch us on Stitcher. We should be there any minute now. I'm Rebecca Lavoy. This is Crime Writers on Serial. We will catch up with you later. Thank you.
Thank you, Rebecca. I missed you all very much. We should get together for a drink sometime. We always say that, but we really should do it. Absolutely. Yeah, pick a date. <laughs> Thank you.